Okay, so I don't understand any of this stuff, but Cousin Bob says, you're supposed to do that in the beginning and the end, and it syncs the audio and the video, and then you do it again at the end, and it's it, this, this action yeah. supposedly serves the same purpose, um, Slate. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, and that's why you do it. Yeah, I didn't know that. I thought it was just the official we're live. Right. But that click, because you can see the click and hear the click, then you can get them tight together and and you're good to go. Yeah, and I forgot to mute these. I mean, baby steps. But Okay. Um, we're here. We're doing we this. We think we're doing this. You could get on a plane tomorrow and land and whenever I get around to pretending to edit this thing and discover that an element is missing or multiple elements are missing, we'll have to postpone. We'll have to we'll have to claim COVID positive and we had to move the game and You can always blame it on COVID. Right. So, um in a perfect world this is uh episode number one, Badass Records. And I'm sitting here uh with Jason Isaac Fisher. Um and uh we're gonna talk some music, but first of all, um this has been something uh you know a lot of time and money and tests of patience to sort of get even to this point um and a lot of people have been helpful uh cousin bob number one uh louis pagan came over and helped me with some stuff in a program that i am probably not going to end up using um but it was still educational um and there's a lot of other people too but i suppose i should save the props for future episodes spread them out um, but we were talking earlier, uh, in the weekend, um, I think it was, it would have had to have been September of 1995 when we met. Okay. And I stumbled into the Fort Lewis College Independent Newspaper Office and discovered there was a breathing, functioning staff of uh, students, uh, aspiring journalists putting out a newspaper every week. And, um, here we are, uh, 20, 26 years later. Is that right? Uh, it would be 26 years later. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so the idea behind this is, um, guest tabs an album and we use it as a launch pad for talking about life and music. Um, but let me get to my notes since I'm a major nerd. Okay. So, uh, much like the middle name conversation earlier, um, let me see if I have biographical details correct. Born in Schenectady. Schenectady, New York. Schenectady, New York, which is not near Buffalo. Uh, no, it's roughly close to the geographical center of New York. Okay. Um, Albany is the capital of New York, um, on the Hudson River, north of New York City, east of Buffalo. Um, Schenectady is, uh, the, the Mohawk River flows into okay. the Hudson, and so across the, the Mohawk is Schenectady, um, which is the headquarters of General Electric, uh, which is where my father worked 
when I was born. Okay. Yeah. So is that where your folks met and how did they meet? Uh, my parents met, um, my, my dad worked for my grandfather and, uh, that was how my parents met. Uh, my dad at the time was being sent all over the world by GE to build power plants. Um, and so I was born in Schenectady and then, uh, the first few years of my life, uh, lived in about a dozen different countries. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we lived in Venezuela and Taiwan and Singapore and Saudi Arabia. Um, Indonesia uh, was where we spent the longest period of time. Um, my, my dad was working for GE, building a power plant, and then the people that he built the power plant for hired him. So he did another job for them in Jakarta, Indonesia, beyond uh, the GE power plant. And that's where my sister was born, um, before we moved back to the States. Okay. So it does go Jason, Emily, Ben, Sarah. Uh, no, Ben's the youngest. Ben's the youngest. Yeah. I knew that. I knew Sarah's that. younger than me, um, then Emily, then Ben. Okay. Okay. So do you have memories of any of those places? Um, not really. Uh, Indonesia, I remember it rained a lot, and I went to a preschool uh, where I was the only like non-Indonesian kid there, and I got yelled at a lot because I I didn't understand the language, and um, and we got like a half hour a week of American TV. Wow. So is that? Could you say that's where uh, your quasi infamous? Why are you yelling at me? Came from all the way back then. Uh, it's possible. <laughs> I have I have not explored uh, the depths of, of the roots of that now. Um, so interesting that you say not really, but you do remember that it rained a lot and that happened with school. Um, because I've thought um, often over the years about my own memories and um, like for I don't know how many years it was like these are hard you know wired they're they're saved to the hard drive there's a backup these are my memories and they are undeniable truths of how those moments in time happened in my life and at some point um, I started to probably like some random evening or late night uh, after a lot of bad decisions flipping through photo albums and beginning to wonder what is the percentage of actual memories that I brought with me from childhood into adulthood and how many did I then fabricate based right. on looking at photographs? Yes. Or hearing other stories, you know, hearing family tales Yes. And then they become yes. yours. Yes. The, the old, you know, uh, folklore around the fire pit. Yes. Um, and there's, there's, um, additionally, and, and, and that the second thought was always kind of like simmering on the back burner, but, um, my, so I have three younger sisters. My oldest younger sister, Tiffany, um, has always done like uh, subconsciously just weird things with memories and by weird things mostly I mean 
she's heard those stories, you know, and seen those pictures and misappropriated my memories as hers. Um, like, you know, five or six scenarios spring to mind, which I always, I always found, um, just fascinating. Um, and then 10 years ago, uh, yeah, probably about 10 years ago, I started seeing, seeing this therapist and she had been like pretty long in the, uh, marriage and, uh, family, whatever I get all of the acronyms in that field jumbled together, but, um, couples and marriage therapy, whatever. Um, and she'd been doing that for a while, but she had just gotten turned on to biofeedback and okay. brain injury. And she was like really into it, like in that fresh, like it's a new thing that I think I really might dig. It might be my lane. Um, and you know, I, 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 I would see her for a while and then I would stop you know, I would sometimes reach a point and this is like Liberty. So, I mean, pretty close to the airport. Sure. And I would always, um, be so ambitious to, to say like, give me the eight or the nine AM, which means, you know, seven fifteen or eight fifteen is your, that's your last to get there on time. Cause right. the clock starts ticking. Like, you know, ten oh five. Your session doesn't go to eleven oh five. Like you, you know. Correct. Anyway, um, so I would reach points where I'd be driving and have all that like sort of forced med- meditative windshield time. This is the drive to or the drive back. To okay. When when I was going, when I was when I was seeing her regularly, and I would have, and this has been true with almost all my therapists, but after a good session, um, you leave feeling better. And I think that's the point. And if you leave, if you tend to leave feeling better and just uh, as it happens, have a drive ahead of you, it's really meditative. Um, But conversely, if you have enough of those like productive quality sessions where you leave, leave feeling good and you actually then down the road in your life are sprinkling in the nuggets that you're getting from your therapist into your actual life and trying to improve or make changes or whatever, you do that long enough, then you start having, I started having this experience where I'm driving to therapy being like, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to bring up? And it even starts in the shower, you know, or perhaps the night before when you see your reminder or set your alarm. Anyway. Right. Um, so she, um, just told a lot of stories, quick little snippets. Um, over time about people that she either had worked with or was working with where, um, you know, um, a couple that's been married for 60 years is now having this just like horrible existence together. And, um, you know, just it's full of negativity and, and bad mojo and they can't figure out why. And so they come into her and they start like trying to hash it out, you know, draw the timeline or so. And inevitably, all these stories, um, not not just like couples, but you maybe you have a, a dude that's been single and um, successful all his life, and then all of a sudden he falls off and he can't keep a job, and all of a sudden he's homeless or he's got a substance abuse problem or whatever. You get in there and you start doing the work, and inevitably stuff would go back to, oh, well, so this happened when this started happening, and then this started happening, and that started happening because, or it started happening like, not too long after that car accident 
And the therapist would be like, what car accidents? And it would be like, you know, oh, I had my skull smashed in between two pickup trucks. And it's like, whoa, uh, interesting detail that you have. And in some cases, I think like that actual kernel of a memory isn't accessible on the top layer. It actually takes the patient. Right. Anyway, um, we're so born in South Carolina. Uh, there for three years, come back, have my sister and the, the place, um, it's about, I don't know, 10 or 12 minutes from here was interesting. A double car garage come in the front door to the side of the double car garage and the family rooms there staircases in between this. You have the family room, the hallway to the basement, which is kind of like, you know, laundry facility and then wraps back around to that garage then there's a staircase upstairs you hit the top of the stairs you have living room dining room kitchen and then a hallway to the the bathroom and the bedrooms and um so we were sitting in this kitchen and at at the dinner table and it wasn't you know like the most sizable kitchen but it worked and we're all four of us it's like literally and it's probably because of this trauma the only memory i have of the four of us sitting down to a meal and my dad's here my mom's here I'm here and my sister's here in a booster seat in her chair. And behind her, uh, the dishwasher door is open. And under the table, I'm kicking the rung of her chair. And she's like tiny. She's like one or 18 months. But it's, 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 I, I think that, um, I could tell that it was bugging her or maybe my parents told me to knock it off. And your age is what? I don't know, five. Okay. (coughs) And I do it one more time and it tips her and she topples over and hits her the back of her head on the edge of the open dishwasher door. Emergency room. uh, I remember her toppling. I remember driving to the hospital and, and the whole memory, the whole experience kind of got wrapped up with a bow of a joke which was Tiffany saying she didn't want to get itches and everybody laughed. Um, and so eventually all these streams cross paths and, you know, I'm like, find myself under the weight of this question. Like, am I the reason that my sister has misappropriated memories or like has a, you know, I mean, it's anyway, um, like from the head trauma. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so a week or so ago I was watching something, Maybe it was a stand-up bit. I don't remember. But whoever was speaking brought up this idea of memories. And they were like, um, I read somewhere that you, up up to a certain point, you have the memory. And then beyond that point, like every time you remember the memory, that remembering becomes the memory. So you wind up with this, um, what was that movie? Um, uh, Inception. Okay. You wind up with this like sort of the, the dream inside the dream peeling away of yeah. layers to like, you know, so well, is, as you get further generations removed, does it become less accurate? I mean, well, I mean, I think that's pretty well understood as it, as it goes to that, like around the fire pit, it's just storytelling passing the, like the telephone game yeah yeah but i mean 
inside just inside your own thing i i i would think so i don't know you know i mean i just wonder if it's um if you're thinking about like an analog recording and you know back in the day when somebody would buy an album and then they would make a copy for a friend and then they right. would make a copy for a friend and it's you know how good is your source material and then how good is your equipment that you're making the copy yeah. onto and then are you making a copy of a copy and you know and and uh, as you get down to the the 5th and the 10th and the 50th retelling or remembering yeah um are you losing connection with the source material how much are you losing um i mean in my experience we tend to uh we tend to remember ourselves obviously more favorably in our memories than uh than may be accurate um and we tend to re obviously we reinforce our own narratives and um the fables that we create about ourselves and our past right yeah um yeah i remember um uh, in my in my heyday of uh fish bootleg cassettes um i was just hungry to get you know a copy of any show that i didn't have you know anybody that I would meet that i was showing can i borrow blah 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 um and then it's like eventually you learn like oh there's grades of quality with the actual blanks you know i landed on max xl 2s um and then you get into this other layer where it's like this is uh soundboard or this is first gen second gen beyond i don't think anybody's putting fourth you know beyond third gen i don't think right anyway uh i borrowed a collection i don't know three or four tapes um uh, from hennis once and he was like i just remember in such a hennis way he was like these are you know whatever they were second gen blah 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 soundboard and th it's always written on there so he's like telling me and i'm but i'm about to go sit like when i would typically unless i was busy i guess um you know i would sit and set up the dual cassette and copy the set list and whatever it was second gen blah 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 sure and for whatever reason um probably just because i was being a selfish little bitch uh i stuck his i stuck the copy that i made back into you know, or I did something that was deceitful and it was not cool. Intentionally deceitful? Yeah. Okay. Like, um, like, I don't know if I was motivated to, like, passive aggressively point out, like, the snobbiness that I felt or if it occurred to me that may maybe I had always been like, oh, it doesn't make a difference. And then I learned that it did. And either... I wanted to see if he would notice or if, um, I, I don't know. So, um, you know, cause if you, if you get your hands on a second gen and you make a copy of, it, and I would make this mistake a lot, like I'm writing my set list and, you know, venue date, blah, blah, blah. And I write second gen and he's probably the one that pointed out to me. This probably had some, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, that's third gen now. And I'd be like, second gen, bro. Like I made a copy of a sec, maybe it's second gen a, you know, anyway, um and 2.1 <laughs> yeah. um so i don't know 
like if he was just like inspecting, you know, like a good librarian, his return elements before he put them back on the shelf, yeah. or if he like actually happened to pull that one out and listen to it. But not too long after, he was like, "Yo," I was like, "What's up?" And he was like, "He swapped the copies," and I was like, "Huh?" You're like, "What?" You you know, just I don't know if I ended up getting you know making it right or if I tried to just lie my way out of. I don't know what ended up happening. But sure. Anyway. Um, so, um, I have been somewhat obsessed with this idea of the musical journey and, um, I know that music was big, uh, in my mom's family. Like there's stories of, you know, my Nana ragtime on the piano and everybody's just, just a gay old time and everybody's got you know star search talent but there's just undiscovered little my dad's house i don't think so in fact there's lots of stories about how you know because they met in high school um in the same you know basically for sure the same diocese of the basketball games that we watch today like okay early early he's like rich you know getting basketball all this stuff and he's like Olay Johnson from Rockers. I'm like, wow, he's got it in his head that that's where he's destined for high school. Uh, you've heard of Rockers before, like I have, yes. Um, Tony Temple. Uh, anyway, um, there's lots of stories of um, my dad just constantly being over at my mom's because it was more fun and he felt more welcome there. But fast forward to, um. I remember in that same house over at 83rd and Lamar uh, for Christmas one year, my dad got me vinyl copies of Rupert Holmes, Holmes, the stranger okay. Pina Colada song. Sure. And Barry Manilow, one voice. Uh, I mean, and it was like, what, uh, what do you want me to do with these? And what, why these, you know? Um, and not not long after they split, and my mom's sister moved in with it. My dad got an apartment. How old were you when uh, they got divorced? I, again, man, for like year, decades, I was like, I was seven, she was four, you know. Um, but there was like this wedding thing that hung. I think I still have it, honestly, um, on the wall in her home in Atlanta. And it said Steve and Juju, 1980. I think it said 1982. It was like a wedding gift from my mom, my stepdad. And so, born in 74, you know, I guess that makes me probably seven, turning eight the year they got married. So then it's like, wait, if they were, if they were seven, I couldn't have been seven when they got divorced because there was at least a little window. I don't know, but like somewhere in the five to seven range, you know, six to eight okay. range. I don't know. Um, so my dad moves out and gets this apartment and my mom's sister moves in and they both, they went out one day and, uh, got matching 1981 Toyota to Um, your mom and your aunt. Yeah. Okay. And my aunt Susie got a silver one with gray interior and my mom's was like rust, like this orange with like tan. Um, and my aunt Susie coughed up the extra bones for FM radio and my mom didn't. And I was always like, well, when it, when it first, when they came home with the cars and I first learned that I was like, I don't know necessarily what that means, but if aunt Susie 
would want to do that? Why wouldn't you? And I had no concept of money, but it right. didn't, but I had some version of concept to where it didn't seem like it would have been an astronomical ask to throw in. I don't know what it was, 250 bucks, whatever it was. Who knows? So, um, that, I mean, that was the car that, you know, she drove me to scouts and games and practice and whatnot and made a couple of trips probably to Florida or Atlanta or went back to Casey. I don't know. But um, a lot of a lot of memories in that car, and uh, they're all centered around seventy one WHB AM radio. Okay, all oldies all the time, and like I don't think I ever tried to, but I got like out of that window of time, I got like a really good mental grasp on the oldies library, like burned into your. Subconscious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and somehow, you know, I don't, I don't, it's not like, I mean, I definitely sang and had favorites, um, but I wasn't like geeked out about it. You know, I was a, a boy, like probably more interested in playing with friends or whatever. Right. Um, but I, I always felt like that kind of parlayed into uh, the next phase, which would be, you know, kind of adolescence and classic rock. And then, from there, you know, and it's kind of been this journey. So I'm curious, um, was there music in your home? What did it look like? Do you have any of those initial 71 WHB memories that are just burned in there? Um, so, uh, the, the home that I grew up in was not, um, particularly musical. Um, my my mom always had you know music in her heart, and uh, I mean some of my early memories. I don't know if this was overseas or if this was back in the United States. Um, I, my mom would be washing dishes or doing housework, and uh, she loved Paul Simon, Simon nice. Garfunkel, um, and uh, I have a vivid childhood memory of. Um, a song called Loves Me Like a Rock. You know that song? Uh, My mama loves me. No. She loves me. I don't think so. It's she Paul Simon? She get down on her knees and hug me because she loved me like a rock. Okay, maybe a little bit. Anyway, okay. um, this was shortly after uh, Simon and Garfunkel broke up. Um, this is okay. one, one of his early solo um, albums called There Goes Rhyme and Simon. This is one of a thousand reasons why I have referred to you over the years as the walking encyclopedia. Like, how do you have that in there? Um, one of your earliest memories of music. And it's like right after Simon and Garfunkel, you know, I, I le- which I learned later. Sure. Of course. Um, but, uh, I mean, we didn't really listen to a ton of music, um, in the house. Uh, my, my dad would listen to music on the radio in his car um, my dad grew up in Texas, uh, a lot of country, um, Hank Williams, uh, Bob Wills and Texas Playboys. Um, and I, I learned later that my dad, uh, I mean, you know, he was baby boomer, uh, graduated from college, 1969, um, saw everyone you can imagine. Um, I mean, saw Led Zeppelin, saw the Stones, um, saw... Dylan, all these people that I would have killed to see, 
back then. Um, but by the time my, my parents had kids, it seemed to me that the, the burdens of parenthood um, weren't overwhelming to them, but I feel like they um, sort of put music, this is this thing that we used to do. Right. We used to go to concerts. We used to buy albums. Like our Chiefs Broncos tradition. Um, we used to, uh, you know, to have music playing in the home. And then with kids, that's not what we're doing anymore. Right. Um, and so one of the things that I always struggled with as compared to my friends when I was growing up um, was that uh, I didn't have an older sibling. Um, a lot of my friends that I was tight with, um, later elementary school, middle school, high school, um, they had a cool older brother you know, that could turn them on to Pink Floyd, turn sure. them on to, you know, whatever. Um, and I didn't have that. I was just, you know, I would get like kind of the, the secondhand spoils. Um, and it was a pattern for me when I was getting into adolescence that I would be listening to something, into something, and one of my friends would be like, what are you doing? Wait, listening some to something into something. What now? Uh, I, I'm I'm into some piece of music. Okay, okay, and uh, I'm into it because it's on the radio or it's on MTV, and my buddy would uh, straighten me out. I see. You know, very interesting. And he and my buddy would typically say, "Yeah, I used to listen to that too," <laughs> until my brother. You know, came home from school, he called me a fag, or and something. said, "What are you doing? Take that off. Listen to this. Yeah. You know, this is a more acceptable substitute for the crap that you're playing right now." And uh, I, th I think that's the you know in the Kevin Bacon turn. I think that's the Def Leppard spectrum. Yes, like Def Leppard has this moment in time where you're like. These guys are the greatest ever. Pretty and much. And then later you're like, I never listened to Def Leppard. Right. Right. And then later you're like, Def Leppard still pretty. All right. Um, but but going back to um, family, uh, that wasn't that wasn't the seed for where my love of music came from. Um, it, it it didn't really come from my okay. parents. Um, it didn't really come from uh, what I saw or what I heard in the in my home growing up. Uh, there were but a, a little bit in the car. Yeah, a little bit in the car. Okay. I mean, the thing you talked about with oldies um, and your AM oldies station, uh, I had neighbors across the street that I rode to school with a lot. And I would go and hop in their car. And it was, a, I mean, I remember Johnny Winters and... Yeah, I mean, not Elvis, but it was like some Carl Perkins. And wow. I mean, I, I, a, a pretty eclectic, I mean, it wasn't like oldies radio, but it was old music that uh, that I hadn't heard before. And I mean, you know, the age that your kids are at, when they hear something that they like, they just want to play that one thing yeah. repeated every day. Baby shark. Yeah. And so I would hop in this car. And uh, and get a ride to school, and my neighbor dad guy that gave me a ride to school, uh, my buddy Charlie's dad Dave, would ask me what did I want what I wanted to hear, and what I always heard in that car was bad bad Leroy Brown from Johnny Winters, 
and I wanted to hear that song every day. And so I listened to that song every day for two years on the way to school and it got burned into my brain. And there's a few other songs that, I mean, if I heard them today, I would know every word and I would be on the vinyl seat of a Jeep Grand Wagoneer um, going to Riverview Elementary when I was, you know, eight years old. So some of those, Johnny, like, you know, those artists, it feels like, and I don't know, um, but it feels like, you know, uh, in the earlier part of the century or maybe towards the turn of the century, there was just a collection of artists, um, you know, like, um, I know lots of people make whiskey or bourbon today, but I mean, like, like of the people that you would consider like true craftsmen, craftswomen, craftspeople making the real good stuff the real way and the finest ingredients and not, you know, they're the ones that are making the whiskey. And then over here you have the one, these are the ones that are making the music. And it seemed like there was kind of like a window where there was a finite number of people. Um, And then obviously some music from, you know, or maybe all music from those artists grows in popularity and, you know, an economy is kind of born out of it and people find out that you as the artist can make money. There's an industry around, you know, I I don't know, live performances, getting, getting albums made, whatever. And then you kind of, and then you spill into that like oldies, not because oldies stations is like after those artists, you know, it's a little bit after, it's not like current, right? The point of oldies radio, as I understand it, is is based on nostalgia. Right. Um, I mean, Nick at Night would show old TV shows. Yeah, yeah. And I would watch these old TV shows, you know, Leave It to Beaver and I Love Lucy. And I mean, like old black and white shows that they would show um, on there. And they had no relevance to me at that time. Um, but I knew that my parents liked watching these shows when they were growing up. And so I would sit around watching Leave it to Beaver. And it was like the fact that my parents had liked it. It's like it had been vouched for by a previous generation. And so I'm like, oh, well, I should probably watch Leave it to Beaver because my dad did. Right. When he was my age. Right. And Oldies Radio, the the point of it is that it's old. It invokes nostalgia. Right. It brings up, um, you know, ma- a time from your childhood yeah. or memories of your grandparents but, or whatever it is. But in 1981, how far back is the oldies station looking to like 1970? Like not too, not a, I don't think too far into the 60s. Yeah. Um, in 1981, rock and roll is still like the the dominant. Um, form of popular music. Right, because um, you go from like that Tony Perkins thing kind of into the oldies things where to pre-oldies or oldies live in the moment and yeah. then you get the Beatles and, and rock and roll and it's right. like as far as the number of artists that can be out there, the sky's the limit and of course hip-hop sort of gets woven into the... Right, but I mean r- rock and roll was the dominant form of music um in 1981 in a way that it's not today uh but when you go back to like the the genesis of rock and roll you know like when when did we get out of 
you know, big band music, swing music, right? Um, this kind of thing. And when did we get into this idea that an electrified um, four-piece band, uh, you know, drums, bass, two guitars, uh, three-minute song with a melody, uh, when did that become like the standard form of music that we could put on the radio, that we could record onto a 45 single um, and market commercially? And, you know, I mean, you're you're into... Elvis and just I mean all of the stuff in the 50s right Mm -hmm. and what I've always seen as oldies radio is once things got um, any sort of an edge when they became dangerous in any way um, in the way that uh, you look at like the big bands from the 70s had some danger to them and then when you go back to the 60s and if you look at the progression of the Beatles in particular, where when the Beatles started out, um, it was... I want to hold your hand. Kind of teeny bopper, right? And then they start smoking pot, or they go to India or whatever, um, and things get a little bit more psychedelic yep. and a little bit more whacked out, and the Beatles became dangerous, right? And so the nostalgia that we want to bring up with oldies is the idea, you know, it's back when music was safe and when music was fun and it was um, okay for kids or okay for families or okay to listen, driving to and from church, whatever it was. Right. Um, and so this, the safety of that, I think, is a key element for what um, people kind of latch on to with oldies. Right. Um, okay, so d- the neighbor dad dude... Um, in the car driving to school or whatever that that's kind of burned in. Um, is there okay? So you know you enter. I guess you know you enter adolescence. Always sort of undefined and changing, but you enter adolescence, and somewhere in that fold is this separation from. Um, what I've always known is to be doing what my family's doing. Right. Um, even, you know, uh, at our kids age now, there's a clear sense of independence and they have hobbies and things that they like, and maybe they crave the occasional bit of, uh, time to themselves, but that's still sort of how they move about the world is what's happening in their family. Right. Yeah. They, they still need rides. Yeah. is a big is a big part of it. <laughs> but but they also um as as much as like with my kids the the teenager stuff starts to come out and you know the arguing and the standoffishness um they constantly crave validation right from their family in particular their parents. Right. If there's something that they like if there's something that they think is cool, you know, it's always, hey, Dad, check this out. Right. Right? Right. For they, sure. They want you to know about it. They want you to see it. They want you to like it with them. And not getting it is crushing. It, it can be, yes. Right. right. But, you know, at some point, and obviously every kid is different, but at some point you step into that ether of, you know, your kid is uh, preferring 
I mean, I would, whatever, hope this doesn't happen, but uh, I'm, I think it's inevitable, but we are kid, like most of their downtime at home, uh, they're in their room or they're off yeah. doing their own thing. Right. So when you are at whatever age that is, is there like, was there a light bulb or like an aha where you're like, oh, this is so much bigger than Tony Perkins and my neighbor's dad's truck. This is so rad, and I will want to listen to it over and over again and share it. Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, I grew up in a small town in Colorado. Um, one record store. I uh, didn't have a ton of live music coming through. Um, didn't have a lot of real good radio. and uh, And so my exposure to a lot of different music um was pretty limited uh my dad was a contractor and um and i would spend go ahead i gotta interrupt yeah. um 78 or he was doing physical plant stuff for ge correct he said uh well he worked for ge um the reason we moved to durango was he got a job at fort lewis right 78 or 79 yeah um but the ge stuff wasn't physical plant related no okay. i mean it, GE sold steam turbines, you know, it's like a giant engine. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and a turbine is like, if you want to generate power, you know, you're going to burn something, usually coal to heat water. The steam coming off the water is going to turn the turbine. The turning of the turbine generates sure. electricity. And so, um, if you want to build a power plant, uh, you would buy one of these turbines, one of these giant engines and, purchasing one of these giant pieces of equipment came with Gene Fisher for six months to come and install it, get you up to speed on the running of this piece of equipment, and then he flies away. Um, so he traveled a lot when they were... How did they meet? Uh, they met through work. I mean, my okay, my, okay. my dad worked for my grandfather, and that's how my parents met. Okay, all right. Um, so he so when they were, like, just starting their family thing in the mid-'70s or whatever in Schenectady, your dad was traveling. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I was born, and a couple of months later, my dad left the country again, and my mom had a decision of, like, do I stay in the United States and raise this kid by myself until he comes back. Wow. Or do I go okay. and travel with him? And so they traveled together for a few years. And then uh, my mom got to the point that the family story is we were living in a hotel in Venezuela and I was two or three years old and I was hanging out by the pool and my mom is just sitting on a chair reading a book and a giant iguana comes out of the jungle and my mom looks at me and there's a, you know, like four foot iguana next to me. And my mom goes and scoops me up and um, pretty much just went to the airport and said, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going back to America. Uh, do what you want. Let me know what Gene Fisher's going to do. Yeah. And, uh, and so then uh, Gene Fisher found a, a job in Durango. Okay. And that's when we moved to Durango. All right. So where were we when I so rudely interrupted? Uh. I used to work summers for my dad's construction business, okay. and uh, I got to be, so this was the summer of 88, um, which is the, the kind of 
break point for me um, between uh, musical infancy and and things opening up. Yeah. Um, Is uh, I went to California for the summer. Um, I went and lived with my aunt and uncle and cousins in Orange County, California. Brian Um, Benzi. Brian Benzi. Represent. Uh, Too bad I don't know his area code. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know what it is. Any, yeah, I know it. I know it used to be seven one four. Anyway, oh, we'll call it seven one four. Yeah. Um, but uh, I went and stayed with them for the summer. This is when I was fifteen. Couldn't drive, um, but I got a job with a contractor in Orange County, and I was just like going to work every day and doing a little bit um, higher level construction i mean i was like i was painting i was doing some remodeling you know this that the other and uh some days i would ride with the boss this guy jim um but a lot of days i would ride with his kind of right hand man whose name was daryl um and daryl was this like ultimate southern california burnout stoner metalhead guy um, and I would get into his, it was like a 74, um, Chevy step side pickup with a toolbox on the back. And we would, I mean, so much of what we did was just driving on freeways, going to jobs. And we would listen to K rock, which is like the heavy duty rock station in LA. Hard and rock, but not heavy metal, hard rock, but not heavy okay. metal. Um, and uh, and then we would listen to whatever he was listening to. And that was, you know, when, I mean, he taught me all about uh, what was going on with Kiss in those days and how the only person in Kiss that could play anything was Ace Fraley. And I played, and I heard Fraley's Comet for the first time. Um, and it's, I, I don't know, uh, Scorpions and Judas Priest and a, I mean, a lot of stuff that I had never heard before. And um, I mean, Appetite for Destruction came out in 87, but I didn't hear it until 88. Sure. Um, because it hadn't hit MTV yet. You know, they were a new ba- Guns N' Roses was a new band. And, uh, and, their, and Sweet Child of Mine hadn't started playing in heavy rotation on MTV yet. Was Sweet Child of Mine first, or or Welcome to the Jungle? No, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, and and also, did so. Uh, Welcome to the Jungle, Sweet Child of Mine, Paradise City are the three blockbusters from that record, right? Sure. Did they hit MTV and then were on the radio? Uh, in your world. In in my world. Um, I don't remember if I had heard of Guns N' Roses before I went to California that okay. summer. Okay. But Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction was the number one song in Daryl's 74 Blue Chevy Stepside. Um, and I heard it hundreds of times that summer. Sweet Child of Mine. Uh that album. Oh, that, the whole thing. Okay. The whole album. Okay, he's playing it. Yes. It's not what the radio is. Okay. Well, it was, and it was getting on the radio too. I mean, I'm sure it was playing on K-Rock before it was playing on um, whatever was the rock station in Durango back then. So you're, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I mean, I definitely had some familiarity with those three tracks before I got a copy of my own. And when I got a copy of my own, I did what I did back then and sat and listened and read. And it's like, wait, are there like lots of heroin and hookers happening in this record? Like, right. Whoa, dark. Yeah. So you're listening to that album over and over again on these freeway stretches. Yes. And, you know, every weekend Daryl is going to some concert, um, at Irvine Meadows Amphitheater, you know, uh, or somewhere in Costa Mesa or whatever it was. And um, and then he's coming back Monday morning and telling me all the tales of his rock and roll adventures. That's awesome titties. And, I, you know, it was it literally blew my mind. You know, I'd, I'd never seen or heard anything like this. And so when I came back to Durango... At the end of that summer, I came back a changed person. Um, Forever changed. And that was also when I started high school, you know? And so I'm a, a, back then it was a three year high school. So I'm coming in as a sophomore. Weird. Um, I, middle school was, uh, it was technically junior high. So seven, eight, nine. Junior high was seven, eight, nine. High school was 10, 11, 12. So I'm coming into high school in 10th grade, sophomore year. Um, playing football and football team was excellent. You know, I mean, we went to the state championship game that year. And uh, when I was, is this the demons? This is the demons. Durango High Demons. Durango High Demons. You gotta give the shout outs, bro. Uh, yes. I mean, um, we already got the merch line uniform with the new right, with the new regime. Durango High School Demons. Obviously, everyone knows uh, won their first Durang, uh, first Colorado State Championship last year. Um, there's an asterisk. It was a COVID year. It uh-huh. was like a four game season, whatever. Um, but in '88, yeah, we were Barry great. Barry Bonds thinks that doesn't matter. By the sure. way, sure. '88, we were great. Um, and I so I step into this team that was loaded. And it's, I mean, I go into the locker room and I go into the weight room as a skinny little boy. And what I'm seeing in front of me are men, you know, and they are chewing tobacco <laughs> and they are clanging in, and banging in the school. Locker. Oh, I, yeah. Dip cups everywhere. And so I walk into this weight room in particular and it is wall to wall Metallica. Um, and these are the Heavy. early, early Metallica albums. You know, uh, this is pre and justice for all. Uh Um, and I, and at that point I'm learning, um, a lot more about Metallica, but I had a little bit, that wasn't Daryl's thing, but in that car on the freeway, you know, I heard what happened with Cliff Burton and Dave Mustaine and, you know, and so I have some of these stories and so I'm talking to these juniors and seniors. Oh, his, his reporting back from the weekend concert. Right. Tales. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And so then I, I'm talking to these juniors and seniors, you know, and they're like, what do you think about Metallica? And I'm just like, Oh, you know, and I, and I'm, oh, well, I've got this opinion about the, you know, Megadeth album. And I think the Dave needs to lay off. And they were like, Whoa, you really know your shit, you know? And uh, so because I had this kind of like um, summer education in uh, Daryl's School of Hard Rock, um, I slipped right into this football team um, a a little bit more um, that it didn't really become what uh, I listened to 
you know, primarily in high school. Right. Because later in, you know, next year or so in high school um, was when I discovered rap music. Right. Um, and I got way more into that my junior year in high school. And then my senior year in high school was when I started getting into a lot more um, alternative rock. And it's when I got into jam bands and the dead. Um, in high school? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, okay. not... I had a lot of friends that were into that, um, and you know, I and I was listening to KDUR and um, and a lot of college rock, um, some jam bands, you know, stuff that was playing in Durango, um, and I just I got kind of like a basic kindergarten level uh, introduction um, to jam bands and the Dead okay. at that point. All right, yeah. Um, so. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, like this has been, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? That's, right. I mean, um, I, I've I've joked many times in my head and, and a few times out loud uh, that, you know, the 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 way that this has to operate is that it starts with soundproofing the room, and we can't hear the doorbell ring or the dog bark. And then you find out that you wound, where you wound up is where you wound up. And so what, what do you do? Well, I mean, you make a hashtag out of it or something. Or a slow, like, badass records where the doorbell rings and the dog barks. Sure. Um, so a lot of the points or ideas or pieces of progress in getting this you know uh, they're, they're they they come up they start as ideas like this room has to be 100 percent soundproof or else it's a failure you know it's, right and so uh i was like i gotta come up with a list of guests and those guests need to give me their most uh, life-changing favorite most played album record uh, in their life of all time and and sometimes people oh, it can't just be one and it's got to be five blah blah um but the idea is uh you know you tell me that record and we use that as our jumping off point for this conversation so i made a list at some point and uh, put it in an email or a word document or something and I printed it off and I've made like a few edits. It's mostly just a huge list of names of people I'm pretty sure would be opening open to say yes. And if, if they already have, if I've already pitched the idea and they've said yes, um, maybe they've given me an album and I've put the album down. Well, when this trip came up for you, for you coming into town, uh, I was like, you ever gonna, you know, and I went back in the text and, and, and noted what you had said. And then it occurred to me, like, there's no way on the face of this planet that Jason Fisher wasn't already on my list and probably already gave me a record, which proved to be true. Okay. So when I asked you just prior to coming in town, uh, you said a couple of things. First, you said, uh, I mean, I don't want to do something that came out before I started buying records. And that struck me as really fascinating. Okay. And I want to know why. Um, that, 
my whole thing was saying that. I mean, it's it's not that that music doesn't count. Um, obviously, some of m- my favorite music that I've ever listened to uh, was recorded before I was born. Um, and to me, it doesn't matter when you come across something. What matters is that you come across something um, and that you you give it a good listen. And if it is impactful for you, then you open it up um, and let it do what it's going to do. I wanted to, when, when you described this project, um, one of the things, as I look back upon all the albums that have made an impact in my life, um, the ones that have affected me the deepest were ones that I felt more a part of the time that they were made. Okay. You were out of the matrix. Um, right. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, and it's, uh, whatever. Um, you're alive, you're aware of music, you have opinions and a new thing comes out and you know that the rest it's new for the rest of the world too. So it, the, the time that, that, uh, Nirvana got big, never mind could not have been recorded or produced in any other time other than whatever it was in the early 90s, 91 or 92, whatever. Seattle grunge scene, and it really just kind of spilled into yes. the rest of the country. I mean, it's it's, it's timeless, classic music, but it needed to come from that place in time. And my connection with that music has to do with how old I was at that time, what I was listening to at that time, um, and what emotions that it evoked for me then. Um, whereas, I mean, if I listen to Neil Young from the early 70s, um, I can get some of the same stuff hmm. that I might get off of something that came out when I was in high school or when I was in college, but it doesn't hit me the same way. Right. Um, because at the time I'm listening to it, you know, Neil Young is an old man. Um, and I mean, I think Neil Young is a visionary genius, but I don't have the same um, peer connection with him than I do with artists who are closer in age to me um, and who were and are producing music at the time when I'm plugged in to the music that yeah. they're producing. Does that make sense? It does, and it's it's really remarkable because it's the opposite for me, I think. Um, okay. High school buddies text thread, um, something... Did we just have, like, a big Kurt Cobain anniversary, like, 30 years? I mean, something insane, like, just a few months ago, I feel. Anyway, Nirvana... Yeah, it would have been the thirtieth anniversary of Nevermind. Okay, that's what it was. That's yeah. and it was in the it was social media yeah. and on the news. Um, so we're talking about it in our thread, and um, uh, one or more folks in particular are really, you know, like a lot of article shares and screenshots, and really uh, echoing what's being said and and how remarkable they were, and and a, a new, new to me. Um, like a like a feature piece on Kurt Cobain and if I could re- recall the author's name I'm certain you would know him but he like went and ha- he like they had a, like a decent relationship and he had 
a couple of instances where they hung for you know a couple of days at a time to work on a feature piece but then they they kind of kept in touch over the years and it, it was really fascinating so okay. um it was a really good read uh well, the same dude that recommended that gave the rib recommendation was the one that was really pumping so um we uh, we that dude and i agree on a lot of things but we we butt heads too um so he he at one point was sharing some uh stuff about I think insecticide because there was Nevermind, which was their debut. And then, um, was it in utero? Was that their second? Yeah. And, and then, and then bleach and insecticide are also records. I, th- I, I maybe bleach was a track. I don't know. Yeah. Bleach is a song. Okay. Okay. Um, um but, he he's hitting on like a couple of tracks in particular from insecticide. And so I think this author was too. And so I went back and kind of gave it a listen, you know, digitally. And I was like, this doesn't do anything for me. And I, now I'm questioning my relationship with Nevermind and, um, in utero. Um, and I, don't know that it was this concrete of a thought at the time, but it was like when all that like grunge stuff was really kind of raining down on us, it sort of felt like, I don't know if this was a a narrative, but it sort of felt like there was this energy in the air that said like your, you know, Pearl Jam 10 is your king of the hill or never mind is. So I went back and I listened and, and I remember just being, I mean, there's a baby with a penis and he's a left-handed guitarist and he's screaming and big weird owls making, you know, uh, what do you call it when he does one of your, a parody, a parody. Um, and they're so kind of like finding out, you know, there's hookers and heroin and appetite and never mind. It was like, there's some elements of unidentifiable darkness in here. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Stone Temple Pilots did it too. You know, where did Mary go? And where's my only cigarette? And just, you know, weird yeah. song. And you're it's like alienation and, and loss. And, yeah, yeah. Like there's some shit happening. But Nirvana was kind of, anyway. Uh, so I went back and kind of gave Nevermind the same kind of listen. And I was like, not bad. But that's not how I viewed, about, viewed it when it came out. Right. Conversely, like most any, I'd, I'd say 75 to 80% of the Neil Young studio discography like will always resonate on that same level for me as like the first time I heard that album. I don't know. So it feels like the opposite is true. But anyway, your point is that you you wanted to be on the grid and sort of part of the thing to select an album. I, um, one of the cool things that I like about music or any art um, is that it doesn't occur in a vacuum. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that I enjoy going to shows is that I get to participate in the music. You know, I'm there for its creation. And I've heard enough artists talk about the energy that they draw from a crowd. And there can be a good crowd or a bad crowd. And um, and even, you know, releasing albums. I mean, yes, it's a commercial endeavor. And uh, back in the day, we would go to a record store and we would buy or not buy albums. And how many albums we would buy collectively would dictate 
how successful that artist was or it would shape the direction that music was going to go in what forms of music became popular and what didn't um and thus what was pushed or encouraged in the future um and i mean it's a it's a very small part to play it's like voting in an election right um but if you do vote in an election you have a stake in what happens in your government correct and so if I'm in theory, I think, yeah, in theory. Um, and so if I'm participating in what is happening with music at that moment, putting down your money, I'm putting down my money. Um, I'm paying attention. I'm watching or listening to whatever is there. Um, I do feel more of a connection with it versus something that uh, that is an artifact from the past. Interesting. Yeah. So in that same, uh, yeah, it's always. Um, I have so many opinions about language written that it's like troublesome to me and cumbersome. And um, I mean, you've, you've taken the occasional jab at Alex with his punctuation and text, but uh, it's, it's, I always, I, I don't, I can't stand it. If you have seven thoughts that you want to share to me and that means I'm getting seven texts from you because it makes me crazy. So if I'm going to buzz your phone, I'm going to do my best to consolidate all of my thoughts from that moment into a text. And I'm going to separate those thoughts with space, you know, um, and, you know, if it's a, a person that I text very frequently with, you know, I've had a number of experiences where they kind of fall into that habit, too. And then we're constantly... The next text is is me responding to your paragraph one and your my two to your two, right. which they're not like paragraphs. You know, it's it's weird to call them paragraphs, but um, so in that same paragraph of that text message where you said you didn't want to do something that came up for you, uh, started buying records, you also said I don't want to do southeastern, which I understand your reasons for not wanting to do it, but it makes me. Um, have to um, force you to say that that is without question his best record or it oh, is yeah. not. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Of, of course. Okay. It's his masterpiece. Um, I feel like um, I, I, I don't bring this up because I have any interest in taking away from any of his other records. I think he's phenomenal um and i think that like any music fan who has artists in their queue that they love and they listen to favorites are always going to vary right? right i mean one man's trash but uh i i just i never uh was able to um uh what were the name what were the last two that he put out uh, the one, f the pandemic one was Reunions. Okay. Um, and then the one before that, was it the Nashville Sound? Yes, the Nashville. Okay. I don't, I don't think that I have Reunions, so I can't, I can't make a comment on that. Um, but I didn't dislike the Nashville Sound, but my, I don't know if you remember, like, uh, some time ago, you were like. 
dude, you got to get this guy a listen. And I was, or or maybe, maybe I just observed you, or observed you say enough things that I felt compelled. And so I went first album of the discography. And yeah. I think it's Siren in the Ditch or Siren, something yep. like that. And I was like, and I remember I reached out to you. And you were, it was a very, uh, uh, your response like registered with me because it was like, you know, it was like the perfect combination of, I'm really glad that you dipped your toe in that water. And, you know, like, it's just not, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta move on to the next one from that. Yeah. No, don't forget that it's there. Like, correct. However, and I was like. I'm going to trust you on this motherfucker. Like, you know, and then I did and I was like, oh my God, I found it. If you look at a cyclist who is riding in the Tour de France, you know at one point that cyclist was on training wheels, correct? Yeah. Um, are you more interested in what he was doing on training wheels or when he actually knew how to ride? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, having never thought of that analogy that uh, I've probably been of the mindset that when you sit down to record a record that you're, you're, you already know how to ride your past. Anyway, like, I'm not trying to, like, the point of it was that, uh, like, I like the Nashville sound. Yeah. Um, you guys were geeked out about it, and I was like, I, my discovery i mean i was probably still not dry out of the pool with my honeymoon phase of uh southeastern i mean i made a playlist of you know all of his right probably didn't include anything from that first one but i made a playlist of i don't know 20 songs and i shared it with you and you're like nice work rook that's really cute but it was super heavy how southeastern of course because i was like this is yeah this is like I mean, if this hasn't won awards, like, there's a problem. Um, but um, in the, a little while back, you were, like, talking about this, um, you know, we're both firstborn. Both. Mm -hmm. And no big brother. You know, you kind of, right. you, you play with the hand you're dealt. Um, and a lot of times you're, like, you know, putting down a two, thinking it's going to beat homeboy's Jack over there because you don't know what that J and that silly outfit means. And that dude's like, yo, quit listening to Journey. You know, yeah. don't play that two. That two doesn't, do, you know. So you talked about kind of being shapeable. Um, and uh, again, kind of one of those thoughts or thought clusters that I don't know if I thought it all along or if it came to me later, but. I think that it, at some point um, that I felt like you were, um, you know, like a fresh, you were always, you know, uh, you have these periods where you're like a fresh ball of clay or, or a blank canvas and you're, you're, you're uh, malleable. And um, like when I first, you know, uh, it's funny hearing that backstory about you being on the highway and listening to Dave's stories of shows and where, you know, regurgitating those tidbits got you in the locker room and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I never had that. So to hear you, um, you know, be able to riff, um, and offer opinions and details about like really anything from the metal scene, 
um, 26 years ago was kind of like, wow, like, I mean, okay, like you had a, a metal period or whatever. And, and, um, uh, and so I, I knew that like rap and hip hop were in there. Um, but it seemed just from the little tidbits that I overheard that it was like substantial. Like you had uh, a whole section of your library that I didn't have access to. So I like, I have nothing to offer in those conversations and probably somebody that's immature or underdeveloped, what do they do? They trash it cause they don't know it, you know? Sure. Um, so that was fascinating. But then, um, then all of a sudden, you know, um, six years later, like there you are like firmly fucking planted in the jam band scene and, you know, lots of trips, lots of plan yeah. traveling to see lots of shows, mostly widespread, but like also, right. um, some festivals or some like multi art anyway, um, logging some serious miles and throwing down some serious coin for ticket. And it's just like, sure. wow. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to, I guess, now-ish, um, I've sort of, and I know you have, like, you, you, um, <laughs> I can't forget, like, uh, not too terribly long after you moved in to Pinnacle Place, and I think, I think your garage was, like, where the piles got put for a long time. And then eventually the garage was kind of like, you know, the elephant in the room for you guys as the home, you know, like get, when are we going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm trying right. to build this, you know? Sure. Um, and we were out for a visit and you're like, I don't even know where my CDSR did. Like they're like in the garage somewhere and I don't really listen to music anymore. I'm like, huh? Right. I mean, you were just like huffing malt, you know, uh, nitrous balloons in the panic parking lot, like yesterday. Um, but then, you know, the next time I'm out, you burned me like 30 CDs, you know, that were all like relatively recent releases, probably yeah. in between that visit and the last, I mean, just feeding me like Kanye and Kurt Vile and War on Drugs, all this. I'm just like, how are you the same guy that didn't even know where, you know? So, and then somewhere, you know, Isabel um comes into your fold and obviously gets massively embraced um but then you you seem you seem to be sort of shot out of a cannon uh into the dead and co thing and it was just like enveloped in this you know nebulous of love and you're like like this is my jam and so i, I look at all of that and um I think gun to my head, like I, the, the most passion and like commitment, you know, is Isabel. Um, you know, um, so like, why is that? Do you think? Um, the reason why I think that is, um, I mean, I, first of all, I think it's supported by the music. I think he's an amazing songwriter. Um, and uh i mean we're similar in age and we have some uh some life experiences that um that are reflective of e of each other you know i mean i i i see myself in him 
more than a lot of artists. And, uh, and I mean, you know, he's a, he's a charismatic, interesting guy. Um, there are a lot of interviews that I, that I read and hear with musicians where, um, I'm disappointed in the, the lack of introspection, um, or the, the lack of detail that they have in, in describing their work. In participating in an interview? Uh, yeah. Any examples? I mean... Um, Even if it's generic? No, I mean, it's Bob Dylan. Okay. okay. Um, I've, I've never been blown away by anything that I've heard Bob Dylan give to an interview. Sure. Um, but obviously Bob Dylan as a songwriter um, and Bob Dylan as a writer, period, uh, his, his message comes through those words. Right. Um, I have no yeah, idea. I don't want to do this. Yeah. yeah. I, I have no idea if Bob Dylan is, you make, in, is I interesting that to talk to. He might be interesting to talk to just face to face. Right. Um, he might not. Right. Uh, he might, you know, just be one of these people that, you know, writing songs is that's what I do. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but I mean, Isbell, I can connect with him on a lot of different levels. Um, but the biggest thing to me, I mean, you were describing my musical journey. Um, I mean, with, you know, who knows what level of accuracy? No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's pretty accurate. Okay. Um, and when you talk about, uh, my malleability, um, it's completely true. Okay. It's, I mean, it's like partial, like there's some envy in observing that too. Like, well, I'm not trying to paint it as a negative. Like, yeah, it's yeah. like, whoa. I, I like to have an open mind, you know. I like to be open to new things and, you know, new music. And um, I'm always drawn to greatness, okay? Uh, particularly, like, when I come across somebody that I consider, like, genius-level Like Bubby Brister? Talent, um, Bubby Brister, obviously, would be that okay um but i'm not a huge fan of reggae but i mean bob marley was a transcendent musical genius um the biggest reason that i got into the grateful dead is jerry garcia was a transcendent musical genius um i feel that way about kurt cobain you know um that whatever you feel about grunge or the darkness of the music or the flannel or whatever um i feel that he was just one of these people like a generational talent um in terms of what he could do and that's what i'm drawn to with him and uh and so a lot of my musical journey has been passive okay um i take recommendations i I, you know, I listen to feedback. Um, I try new things. Some of it sticks, some of it doesn't. Um, and what I like is what I like. Um, I'm not pretending to like something because I think it's cool or, you know, my friends are into it, whatever. What I like is what I like. Um, but at some point between whatever, uh, college, and when I started getting into Jason Isbell, um, I took more control um, over music. I quit listening to the radio 
completely. Sure. Um, I, uh, you know, I became instead of like a passive passenger, um, I took control of the wheel and I said, okay, these are the things that I like. And now I want to dig deeper into what I like. I still want to keep that open mind. I still want to, be, you know, be accepting. You just um, kept keeping on in yeah. uh, Dave's pickup in Southern California for a couple decades. And yeah. you're like, hey, man, I'll drive now. Correct. Okay. Um, and so uh, that was the point that I was at when um, Southeastern came out. I mean, before that. Um, I had a lot of connection with Jason Isbell. Um, he played in drive-by truckers sure. for a few years. Um, back was when it I was a controversial exit. Uh, I mean, he was a junkie. Oh. Um, and got fired from the band. Oh. Um, and at the, you know back when I was listening to a lot of widespread panic, uh, this is when Michael Hauser got sick, and eventually died from pancreatic cancer. And the first guitarist that they brought in to replace him um, wasn't that great. And there was a lot of doubt as to whether or not the, the band was going to continue or it was going to continue being good. Was or was not George McConnell? Uh, yeah, it was George McConnell. What do, you, what do you mean he wasn't good? Wasn't that good? Um, he wasn't a fit. He wasn't a fit? Yeah. Not to say he was a... Not a no, good no, guitarist. He's, okay. Not a okay. bad guy, not a bad guitar player. Gotcha. But uh, wasn't a fit for that band. Is and that s- widely accepted as accurate in the spread community, would you say? I, I'm, I don't consider, like, I'm not really plugged into the spread community. Back when you but, were. But I've never, like, I've heard very few, like, uh, vociferous defenders of... The George Arrow is the best. Correct. Okay. Um, and so... In that time period when, you know, I was going to a lot of panic shows and it was just kind of like up in the air, like, is this band going to continue? Um, What are we going to do if we don't get summer tour? Uh, This is when I was like on message boards and all this kind of stuff. And I heard a lot of buzz about drive-by truckers. No kidding. That's the leap. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because it was, you know, they're from... That region of the country. You're you're getting on it, firing up a desktop or a laptop for that. You're not message boarding from your phone back then. Uh, no, 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 no. Wow, this, this you're is, sitting down. Yes, putting your butt in the chair. This is sit down, internet commitment. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I. That's when I started to hear all this buzz about drive-by truckers, and that's when Isbo was in the band. Um, he was involved in three albums for them, which, in my opinion, are their three best albums. Um, and a lot of the music that he recorded, that he wrote um, for the truckers and recorded, are like some of his best songs that he plays live now. Um, Such as, I mean, TVA, uh, you know, goddamn lonely love. There you go. Um, now you're you know, we ain't never gonna change. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, I gotta go listen to some Isbell after this. Yeah, and. Um, so I, you know, I listened to a little bit of drive by truckers. I'm just, you know, I'm checking them out. I'm like, yeah, this is a pretty good band. And when he got fired, I mean, I heard about it. I knew about it and I knew some of his songs from the truckers. And it was this thing of, you know, I mean, I learned later that he was kicked out. He was a lot younger than the regular, than the rest of the guys in that band. No kidding. And, you know, he like hits the road, 
um, with a fairly successful band, and he's in his mid-20s, he's making money for the first time in his life, um, drinking a bunch, doing a ton of coke. Really? Um, yeah. I knew he drank, but... There's a... They did a documentary. Oh, boy. Um, Ken Burns? No. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's like this super low-budget documentary um, of the drive-by truckers during this time, and it actually documents like him being fired. And oh, when, shit. when you see him... Like in this documentary, he's um, just super immature. Um, he's really, you know, bloated. Uh, he doesn't look healthy. Um, he was married to the bass player at that time, um, and it w- he was a mess. Okay. And then they fire him, and they and they, he, but he does this interview for the documentary, and he's like, "Well, I'm just gonna, you know, go and bank start a band, whatever," which is what he did. And was it he, a good documentary? Um, is yeah, for Isabel fans or not? Yes. Okay. Um, I'm also a sucker for just about any music documentary. <laughs> One of my favorite movies that's ever been made was the documentary about Metallica called "Some Kind of Monster." Have you ever seen it? Um, mm-hmm. It is a glorious train wreck. It is so fucking bad. Really. Um, it's like. Metallica at their worst. Oh boy. They are, you know, all these superstars, private jets. Um, they're trying to record an album. They all hate each other. They're all going to therapy and rehab, um, acting petulantly, you know, driving off in their Bentleys. It is, but it is fascinating. And the thing that's most fascinating to me is why did they let this movie get released? You know, are they so, like, enamored with their own egos? Like, it makes them all look like complete, immature Has assholes. anybody ever asked them that, that you're I aware? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Um, there's another one like this. You know a band called The National? I think so. Okay. So The, the National um, is a five-piece band. Not, right? They're not uh, indie rock. Or... They're, yeah, they're okay, indie. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's two sets of brothers, okay? It's like the Destner brothers are, like, the rhythm section, and then there's two other brothers that play guitar and then the then there's a singer who's not related to either set of brothers so that's the five piece band right mm-hmm. um and they got to be pretty big in the indie scene well the brother of the singer is this like incompetent documentary filmmaker that the band hires to make a documentary um about the band and he doesn't know what he's doing. Oh boy! And kind of like this. <laughs> I mean, and it's just—it's so fascinating to watch. You know that it's just like you're watching this, and it's so cringeworthy. And every scene, you're just like, "Oh my god! Oh my! What are they going to fire him? If how if they fired him, how am I watching this movie?" <laughs> did, did you notice that we lost video? By the way, uh, I did notice. That yeah. There's no screen up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. But. Okay. Uh, extension cords, I guess, are in the future to just stay plugged in for... Anyway. Uh, yeah, but uh, the Drive-By Truckers documentary, he he loses his job. He goes and immediately starts um, this new band, but uh, he's still continuing his wayward ways. And it was only when he met uh, a fiddle player who played in his band, who was his now wife, Amanda Shires. They're still married. Yes. Wasn't there like something kind of floating around 18 months or two years ago about like there was speculation like that 
he, he he's drinking again or they were separated or but it, it was just like bloop, the little you know, that doesn't ring a bell uh, i did ring okay. a bell. all right um but he he met her and then he did a a tour with ryan adams solo acoustic which he'd never had the balls to do before and ryan adams like convinced him your songs are good enough you don't need the the security blanket of your band get out on a stage strip down to your vulnerabilities and sing and play your words to an audience and give them you know open up to the to the audience and let them see you and they will reciprocate make yourself vulnerable right yeah um and so you know he's talked many times about how transformative that tour opening for ryan adams was but he was still a mess Ryan Adams and Amanda Shires did an intervention. Seriously? After that, he got cleaned up. The result of that is Southeastern. That is okay. his like rehab. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. And and you hear it on that record. I think I told you I was cutting the grass like third or fourth front to back. Listen. Yeah. And I like, all right. I let go of the handle. I was like, I gotta, I gotta step away from this and figure out like what's going on. You know, just a quick Google. I gotta know a little bit, and it's like, okay, he had, he had some stuff, and he, he's behind it now. But holy shit, did he capture? Yep. The the pain, the struggle, the suffer. I mean, whatever it. Is, I don't. I mean it. I mean, like, stop me in my tracks. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, it, I, I do because I vividly remember. Um, the same epiphany myself. And then I, I mean, I later read about um, the, the production of that album. Uh, the, the producer is a guy named Dave Cobb, um, who's pretty big. Uh, Stephen Wynn's uncle. <laughs> he might be. Um, what was it that you were calling uh, pre- pre- all these prima donna musicians? The yeah. week, wedding weekend? Yeah. All these prima donna musicians. <sighs> um but but Dave Cobb, you know, he's he's been plugged in with a lot of um, people that are kind of of the same ilk, uh, you know, like one foot in country, one foot in rock, um, not mainstream country artists, but, you know, cut from that cloth. Okay. And when Dave Cobb first um, was approached to work with Isbel, um, he'd heard all the stories. You know, I don't want to waste my time with somebody who's just going to who's not going to show up for rehearsal, who's not going to show up for recording, who can't be trusted, who gets fired from bands. Um, You know, show me what you got. And they're like in a hotel room and he's like doing a live demo. And Dave Cobb is got a recording machine and a microphone. And he's the boom and the gaffer and the best boy. Isbel plays cover me up. Mm. Um like just the heart-wrenching show-stopping vulnerable song and Dave Cobb is holding the mic till someone needs medical attention or the magnolias bloom he's holding the mic and he's like his hand is shaking he's like I have to get this because what I'm hearing in this hotel room is maybe the best thing I've ever heard in my life and what Cover, cover me up on southeastern yeah okay and this might be the best take of it. I don't want to ruin it by like dropping this mic or you know whatever. Um, yeah. What was the uh, 
uh, the Grateful Dead documentary, uh, Long Strange Trip. Yeah. Um, the Morning Dew, where the dude was always in the truck. Europe had, 72. Yeah. He comes out uh, to do something, whatever, and he gets busted by Jerry because he's, he's in the crowd. Um, but he has to listen to that Morning Dew. And he's just like, this is the best thing I've ever heard. I really hope this is picking up in the truck. Because <laughs> there's no one there. Small gamble. There's no one there. Uh, and he goes back to the truck, and thank God oh it was God. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's a great story, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so have you dabbled in the Ryan Adams discography? Uh, yeah. And? I, Ryan Adams is... Mind-blowing. I said, and I almost got assassinated for this, uh, it's a stupid word, um, uh, crucified, like whatever. Um, I said he's probably one of the uh, top ten American-born singer-songwriters of all time. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, my audience was young yeah. and like not able to see past his transgressions right or had you know um one reframe i don't know one little kernel of one song that just meant that they didn't like that meant all of its garbage and i was just like dude not having this conversation if you haven't done the whole you know it's like trying to talk metal with you guys in the mid 90s or late 90s like i I don't have anything, so I don't know what what can I contribute, but you know, whatever. Um he's pretty incredible. Uh at least the, the, the thing about Ryan Adams it, I mean it's just like I, I I've rarely seen a musician as prolific. Um I mean he could easily put out three, four, five albums a year. Um he he generates, he writes that much music. He has I don't know how many unreleased albums. Seriously. Uh, he, I mean, there's m many, many stories of him writing and recording an entire album. And there is some little flaw. Oh, and he's like putting the whole thing in the vault and we're going to start over, you know, with new material. Right. Um, I mean, he's definitely got some, I mean, he's talked about it, uh, Obsessive compulsive, you know, like serious uh, mental health stuff um, that has steered him wrong in the past. But it is the fuel uh, to I mean, he's he's produced an insane amount of wonderfully great music. Wow. Um, I still listen to him. I don't listen with um, the fervor. fervor yeah. Uh, you know, or I'm I'm not locked in on every move that Ryan Adams makes, or you know, waiting sure. for tour dates or whatever. How many of his records do you have in your phone right now? Would I you say eight or ten? No kidding. Oh yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. So if you happen to, I don't know about you, but you know, uh, a lot of times I'll get in the car and I'll just go to my library, library songs shuffle. And if something comes up that I'm not in the mood for, I just skip it. But that's as much uh, as uh, I'm not forcing my listening any any further than that. Sure. 
So he could come up, if you were to do that, he could come up relatively frequently. Eight to ten albums. Yeah. Um, so we're close. Um, um, but I need to touch base on bladder, beverage, and if we exit for replenishment or relief from any of those, will we be able to return to finish without the kids, you know? Oh, I'm, I'm solid. You're good to just yeah, yeah. write it out. I'm good to write okay. it out. So that stuff about, um, you know, not being interested in buying records that came out before you started buying records and the South, you know, not, I don't want to choose Southeastern. Those were your non-answers. Uh, Correct. To the, so, so your, uh, your answers the most recent time around were uh, straight, straight out of Compton, an appetite for destruction. Correct. Do you remember what your answer was the first time I asked? Um, I'm I'm gonna guess that appetite. Uh, it wasn't a repeat. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. No, I don't. Exile on Main Street. Okay. Yeah. So it must have been I, I was in an Exile on Main Street phase. Okay. Interesting. Uh, it's also um, Exile on Main Street has always been like a, a cheating answer for like a, mm. a desert island trying album. Trying to figure out if you should swipe left or right on me. Uh, well, no, it's like you got to pick one album to have on a desert island, you know, whatever. And because it's a double album, um, it's probably my favorite double album. I like it more than the white album. Um, yeah. Okay, I want you to say whatever comes to mind about each of those three records. But before you do, I'm going to get myself a liquid death. Do you want one? Because I'm parched. Uh, water. Is that down here? Yeah. I'm good. You don't want any water. Hey, I'll take a water. Okay. bizarre is it that an hour and 40 minutes in we haven't like heard a peep or I haven't heard a peep with the cans on or we haven't had an interruption like what do you think is happening up there um I'm thinking that either they did find a movie or something like that um knowing my kids uh if Eva feels tired she'll just go to bed and she won't have to say Good night. I love you. To come tuck me in. Uh, no, not if she if she knows that we're doing okay. this. Whatever. Okay. She'll, no, she'll just go to bed. Um, and Jackson will stay up as late as he can. If I forget to tell your children directly before you guys get on that plane tomorrow, uh, please tell them for me. Hopefully, I'll remember. Um, I was thinking about this in the shower today. There's really no way. You can ever know what it's like to have sweet kids 
until you have sweet kids. And then, God damn, if that's not a fucking boost that you can just ride over the clouds. It's the greatest. I mean, have you seen the meme going around, or the, the, you know, sometimes text threads become a meme? There's one where it's like a, a couple that have, I don't know, probably met on an app, and they've they've moved into the uh, the risky venue of texting. You know, they have exchange numbers, and um, the whoever the blue, I think the blue person is the dude. Um, you have kids, and yeah, are they dicks? And she's like, what? And she's like, that's something to the effect that's kind of a, like a deal breaker. I don't know if I want to talk to you anymore. And he's like, listen, I've got two or three and I've been to more birthday parties and baseball games and et cetera, et cetera, than yeah. I could possibly count in my life. And if there's one truth I know is that there are kids out there that are dicks. And if your kids are dicks, I don't, you know, and it's, it's really just a funny yeah. anyway. Um, you have really sweet kids, man, and uh, as do you. Thanks. Yeah, it's just—I mean—such a testament to their parents. Um, I'd like to give you as much of the credit as I could, but I know it's a—I know how it works. Um, so yeah, amazing. Um, so exile—it's an easy answer. Anything else? Um. Well, I mean, it's. Uh, I love the Rolling Stones. Okay. Um, I, uh, I mean, I definitely went through this period where I was like super into. Um, this is around the time when um, there was at least one documentary about Muscle Shoals um, came out, and there might have been two. Um, and I mean, going back to Drive By Truckers, Patterson Hood, who's like one of the two main guys in Drive By Truckers. His dad was one of the session musicians um, at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals uh, that sat in and played on all these great albums that came out of there from, you know, Aretha Franklin and Exile on Main Street um, and all, all the people that came down to Muscle Shoals uh, to record. And uh, and so I, at the time you asked that question, I was probably into that phase where I was just like, what else was recorded there, you know, and oh, yeah. who sat in on that one, right? You know, and and you know, why does Percy Sledge throw up all the time? Just and, adding details yeah, to your encyclopedia whatever, files, whatever. man. Just, um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I love these connections, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, cool. I love this shit. I, I, I get off on, um, you know, going down Wikipedia rabbit holes and uh, finding stuff that I didn't know before, right? Um, and and all you know i do it with a lot of things i mean i do it with football and architecture and uh what i mean nerd alert uh guilty but when it comes to music one of my favorite things is that if i go down this rabbit hole whatever and i learn about this album that robert palmer um recorded in new orleans in 1972 Fucking robert uh, palmer dude that old stuff, I know, man. Holy and shit. and and the meters were his backing band, and Alan Toussaint was the producer. Um, and then it's just like, and then it's like listing off these three or four other guys who I've never heard of, that were the other session musicians. So I'm like, well, let me look into these, like all the look at all these other amazing people that were in that room. What did these three guys do? And then I look into it, 
And it's just like, where's Jason? He gone. I he's, mean, he's yes. gone, gone. You know, and I find out that this guy was the cousin of this guy. And, you know, he worked. He's eating we, locks and lock with Adam Schefter at his 80s. I mean, um, destroying their bathroom. I love it. You know, um, I love it. That's really cool. Uh, I cannot. It's, I, I don't think that it, it's that I was that surprised at how good that stuff was. I'm just that surprised that the lights on and simply yours. That's what, it, how many people, if you took a random sample of a hundred and said, Rob, what, what, what comes to mind? I mean, that, that's all I had. I thought that dude was like a two-hit wonder or an 80s, you know. Do you remember an 80s supergroup called The Power Station? <sighs> remember might be a strong word, but it sounds familiar. Okay. Um, there was a recording studio in New York City called The Power Station. Okay. And so it was a lot of guys from a lot of bands were like hanging around that recording studio. And they threw together a side project. I want to say there was like some people from Duran Duran um in it i mean i'd have to look it up yeah but robert palmer um was the singer for this like um extremely soft uh hard rock band (laughs) um in the 80s yeah Uh, i think you just described foreigner um not much different right we grew up at a very particular time in American musical history where we're like coming to our consciousness right as MTV is starting, right? The mindfuck. And so, but it, you know, looking back on it, we can see all the changes that MTV had. Like, I, you know, you look at the musical career that Robert Palmer had post and pre MTV. Um, I mean, I look at like Springsteen and ZZ Top and, you know, some Aretha Franklin, even the Rolling Stones, you know, and I mean, the, the things that they did up until MTV happened. And then it's like, well, if I'm going to be viable in the music industry, I have to do this. Um, and some people like Michael Jackson, you know, it launched it Prince, you know, whatever, um, they were able to embrace the the form, make its own new art out of it, um, and have these killer careers. Some people, you know, are just like I mean, I look at some of those like seventies and even sixties artists that were still trying to hang around on MTV, and the results vary, right? Um, I mean, Steve Winwood's another guy. I mean, it's like I love st- like MTV era Steve Winwood. I I loved it. The high you know? life, baby. And but then it's like later on, I dug back into like traffic was sick, you know. And I mean, it's just like uh, I saw all the pre MTV, and so like that's like the delineation point um, for a lot of these people. And I love going back into you know find someone like Robert Palmer, you know, and it's like dude, this guy slaps, dude. That was <laughs> such a treat, and I I, yeah. I got I ejected on accident. I don't know how. But I was thick in it for like ten days, like kind of like that, like look around, like anybody see that shit? Like, <laughs> ooh. And, but I wasn't even. I it was a surface scratch. Like I got to get back. I'll get back in there at some point. But um, so we kind of touched on 
appetite by accident. Right. Um, anything else come to mind? Uh, no, I mean, it's um, the, the biggest thing that that was for me. I mean, it's like we, we talked a minute ago about me kind of like taking ownership, uh, you know, in, instead of like letting music come to me, um, I'm going to drive, you know, the truck now. And th- like the, the attitude behind appetite, you know, of just like, I'm here to kick ass and not apologize, whatever. That's not my personality. That's not who I am. Um, but I can like live vicariously through Axl Rose or Ice Cube um, or whoever uh, just out here, just fuck you. Um, and at the time that they were making those albums, uh, I was in my like high school years rebelling from my parents and I loved it. Uh, it, it really, really like dug deep inside me. I, uh, I don't mean to do that record any disservice by going back to the three mega hits, but what different directions, um, you have like arguably one of the most um grasping uh just i mean incredible guitar riffs of all time with sweet child of mine mm-hmm. and it starts the song mm-hmm. alone yeah it's one track in the in the recording mix right and then the everything else comes but it sta- it's sort of the lifeline of that sort of stays correct and it 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 takes off into a solo form and then kind of returns back um and it's uh lyrically it's tender um it's a ballad it's a ballad yeah um and then you have um welcome to the jungle where like privately um like i get i see that it's a banger that it's a rocker but also i'm a little like do i does this make me feel scared you know like this is kind of crazy and also like um, I don't know if I want to like watch this video if my mom's in the room, right. like the weird, like police hat and the kind of like hooker looking girls and blah, blah, blah. And then, I mean, I know you got the little part of paradise city where, you know, but for the most part, there's like the one lyrical riff take me down to Paris City of Grass Green the girl won't you please take me home and they just say that over and over again right but like there's a crispness and a cleanness and something compelling about the music for that song in general and then you add that like holy shit stadium rock feel to the yeah. video and it's like these it's like a three headed mon- and again like I know there's a lot of other really good tracks on that album, but like, whoa, the, whoa. the coolest thing about that video is it was like, uh, it, I mean, they cheated. Okay. Because the videos filmed at giant stadium and guns and roses eventually got big enough to where they could headline giant stadium. But at the it time, seem a little early, um, at the time that they recorded the video for Paradise City, they were not headlining Giant Stadium, but they did play there. They opened up, I think, for Aerosmith. Okay. And so um, <laughs> they did not take Aerosmith's crowd footage and make it their own, did they? Of course they did. Oh, my God. Are you serious? I didn't know yeah. that. I didn't yeah, yeah. know that. 
uh, Giant Stadium was not full for the opener. Okay. And so they arrived and they were so big immediately that we were like, they're openers. If you notice, like the next time you watch that video, just notice that like whenever you see like the band shots with the crowd, it's only going six rows back, six or 15 rows back. And like when you get the wide shot with the upper deck, whatever. That's the Aerosmith part of the show. Okay. Yes. Okay. Fascinating. It's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. They like they just like bootlegged uh, a stadium video. It was so great. Man, you know that shit ain't second gen anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you mentioned Ice Cube a minute ago, which was uh, a perfect segue uh, to straight out of Compton. Um, I mean, I know I've always known you to have been a huge fan of that record, that group, that that genre. I know you were uh, super geeked for the movie, or movie documentary. Movie. It was, I mean, no, they they made the movie. They made they the movie, like yeah, yeah. And it had that. What was the manager's like? He he just made me. Jerry Heller, played by Paul Giamatti. Yeah, Paul. G- he just always like has anxiety like dripping off of him, and it like gets on you, and like I don't. Is this gonna? Are we gonna go somewhere? I like with it? anyway. Um, I had. Easy Does It uh, dropped in my lap. Is that your, one of your children? Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, where are you? Can you please come upstairs? Love Eva. <laughs> As if on cue. Okay. Can you tell her we're almost there? Or yeah. Okay. Or you can run up there if you want. We can no. cut it out. Uh, go ahead with your question. Um, so... Easy does it gets dropped in my lap, and I spent, I was obsessed with that that record, um, probably because it had like just mind blowing lyrics, killer beats, and so much sex at the perfect time for me. Yep. Like, oh, I gotta like you know, have multiple partners and use all the holes and tell people what to do. Anyway, how did a two live crew hit you? Uh, I mean, so I was really, if I remember correctly, I had, I was obsessed with easy. Does it, um, the trim also fell in my lap at the same time. I think is the correct name of the outfit and the cars that go boom. They were the two girl Tigra and Bonnie, you know what I'm talking about? Um, and, um, I kind of like fell sideways into the too short pool for a minute. Um, and got out of. I mean, I didn't. I didn't like ever fully get out. Of, I fucking love too short. As do I. But uh, anyway, I was kind of like exploring all this stuff, and I think right around that time, straight out of comp, I got myself a copy of Straight Out of Compton, and I loved it. But I didn't hang with it for like you know, a super long amount, like I moved on, like two life crew probably came out and, you know, Mike and I, we, we would bump that like all the time. And right. it was like, just like shock value. And we just didn't like, you know, pull up next to the old person at the stoplight and now put it in the buck, you know, put her in the, what, you know, the girl for each day. The, I mean, so many, so- every song on that album, you're like, oh, what? Yeah. You can go into a studio and record this. Uh, yeah. It's just audio porn. Yeah, um, so eventually, I can't really say when it was, I came back around straight out of Compton, and it is, like, 
I mean, I don't know that you could really put an adjective or a value on it. I mean, it's just, it was a game changer, right? Yeah. It was amazing. Um, never gets old, never gets bad. Uh, when I listen to like old albums that I used to love, um, the, th- the thing that never ages well is like the, the skits in between. Um, I mean, I don't know how you feel about the chronic skits these days. Or like the stuff on Nelly albums, you Blue know, Nelly Farnsworth. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I mean, it just cranks all day, forever. Um, it hits hard. It's so fucking good. Yeah. Um, all the way through, and uh, yeah, I was super pumped when that movie came out, and I mean, I've watched that movie a couple times now. It's not great. Right. Um, That's not bad. It's, I mean, just like I love music documentaries, and you can give me pretty much... You're a sucker, he said. ...any music documentary, um, and I'm going to find at least some kernel of something that I really you know, enjoy. I, I love, like, the chronicling of the creation of music, um, I, I think is cool. Um, in that uh, Long Strange Trip... Um, documentary on Amazon. Did you see the part where they're like um, at Winterland and Jerry and Bobby and Phil are working out the harmonies on Candyman? Mm-hmm. Um, it's the stuff. That's the kind of stuff that I love. I, there's an Eagles documentary. Oh boy. Okay. Have you seen it? No. All right. It's four hours. Oh my god. Um. Yeah. It's Dude the abides. Eagles. It's terrible. Okay. <laughs> but. There was one moment in that documentary where Glenn Fry is talking about when he moved to Los Angeles. Um, he lived in this shitty apartment in like the basement of this weird building, and his upstairs neighbor was Jackson Brown. Okay, whoa, um, just a twist of fate. Okay, and uh, he was working on the lyrics to uh, what is the shitty Eagles song. Um, <laughs> I mean, is it peaceful, easy feeling? Uh, I'm a standing on a corner in Winslow, Winslow Arizona. Such, yeah. Uh, so he has that line. All right. But he can't do the next line. And uh, Jackson Brown comes downstairs and, you know, he's like, there's a girl, my Lord, in a flatbed Ford slowing down to take a look at me. And Glenn Fry just looks at Jackson Brown and Jackson Brown's just like, dude, it's easy. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, um, you know, when you get stuck in a song, you know, girls, cars, you know, this, it's simple. It's, it, go back to high school and find the things that you were into. Did you just, um, did you just expose the gangsta, gangsta rap recipe? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, but he's also telling a story about, uh, Jackson Brown where he, um, Jackson Brown had a tea kettle. Okay. And so um, Glenn Fry would be downstairs in his apartment, and he would hear the tea kettle whistle, so he knows that Jackson Brown is making tea. And then he would go over to the piano, and he would work on, like, one part of the piano. He would play it over and over and over and over again. And then he would go make another tea kettle, and he would just go to, like, the next note and play it over until he got it right. And... Glenn Fry's downstairs in the basement and he's hung over um, and he used to work for Bob Seger and he's, you know, 
uh, playing back in the backup band for Linda Ronstadt, and um, and he's hearing this, and at first he's annoyed by the repetition and tediousness of Jackson Brown's songwriting process, but then after a while he comes to appreciate that that's what it takes to write music. Is ten thousand hours? You have to strip it down to its barest essentials, you know, and do it. And here in the middle of this god-awful Eagles documentary, I find this, like, little nugget of, like, that was fucking awesome. That was such a cool story. I got my four hours worth. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And so, and, like, when they make these um, movies, they're not documentaries. It's, like, Almost Famous or the Freddie Mercury movie or the Doors movie. Um, Did you like that, the Doors movie? I mean, what did it come out when I was nineteen? I, I saw it in the theater. It's the only time I saw it, and I Dude, liked it. But I liked I loved the doors. It. Yeah. Um, I go back and watch it now, and it's it's not great. Okay. Okay. You've done that. Oh yeah. Okay. But I still, you know, I mean, those are like one of my favorite forms of movies, and I will always watch them because it's documenting this thing that it's like the coolest thing in the world. It's like you know, there's these. How did these guys like? How did John and Paul meet each other? You know, and you know, how did they like come up with the idea for this thing? You know, um, it, whatever it is. Um, have I told you about the the Motley Crue movie and book? I was talking with Alex about this a couple okay. weeks ago. Um, the book is called The Dirt. Okay, and they made a Netflix like a made for TV movie on Netflix, and it's bad. Okay, um, but great. But the book, I read the book, and it's one of like the most interesting books about music that I've ever read because it's like a autobiography of Motley Crue, and all the band members write it, but they write it like one at a time, and so it's like Nikki Six will tell a story, and then Tommy Lee will come in, and he's like, Nikki probably told you the story was like this, but he always lies, and this is the way that it actually happened, you know. And then Mick Mars will come in, and it's like these guys are idiots, and you know, all this kind of, st- you know. Have you seen Tommy's wife? His current wife? Yeah. No. Oh my god. Different stories. Sure. I mean, yeah. Sharp. Like super, super loves him. She's really sweet, and just like you're, just like. <laughs> anyway, so I love all these movies. Yeah. Okay. And the Straight Outta Compton movie um, is not great, but uh, the music rips. And my favorite part of that movie is like they're in the studio. Easy E at this point um, is he's just the financing. You know, he is not a rapper. He is a drug dealer. And he wants to put his money into something more stable yeah. than drugs. Yeah. And so he finances the genesis of NWA. And Ice Cube writes Easy Does It. You know, the song's about Easy E. They can't get it right, so they put Easy E in the record booth. And, you know, and then he, f- you know, kills it. Dre's dropping the beat and, you know, cruising down the street in my six full. You know, and they do it like five different times. And it, the first four are super corny. And then, like, when he hits it, you know, Dr. Dre's like, whoa, you know, do it like that. And it goes, it, it's it's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, the way they do it is cool. Um, the whole uh, backstory behind that movie 
is at one point like super fascinating. Like Suge Knight killed a guy on the set and is in prison for it right now. Um, and it's also a little bit depressing just in the way that uh, Ice Cube and Dre, you know, they're producers on the movie and they told the story that the way that they wanted it told. You know? Suge Knight killed a guy on the set of the making of the Straight Outta Compton movie? You don't know this story? No. Okay. I thought Suge Knight was already in prison. Um, I mean, he was on probation. I don't know. Okay. He was a free man. Yeah. Okay. And he goes down to the set where they're making this movie. Bullshit. In, in like South uninvited? Central. Yeah. Just found out like where. I'm yeah. going to roll up. And he goes down there. Because number one, he heard about how he was going to be portrayed in the movie. I figured we were getting and that. was not excited about that. And number two, he's like, "How are you guys making a movie about me, for which I'm receiving no compensation?" How is that movie about him? It's not okay, but he is a character in the movie. Sure. Um, and he, the conversation doesn't go very well, and so um. That night on TMZ, I'm watching like uh, surveillance um, footage from a parking lot of Suge Knight like running a guy over with his truck. Um, you know, like he's like storming out of the set and runs a guy over who's like trying to I don't know what he was doing. Innocent um, bystander? Like he didn't go down there to kill that guy. He hit two people with his truck. Jesus one of them was a security guard. Um, I think another one was somebody who he had a uh, a Beef dispute with. with. I don't. One of them died. One of them didn't. Um, yes, Suge Knight is currently in prison. Will be for the rest of his life for killing sure about so- that? for killing someone on the set of this movie. Wow. Yeah. Has there ever been like a a, a more palpable like real world villain in your mind than that guy? Than Suge? Yeah. Uh, he's up there. I mean, yeah. Okay, so, um, you've clearly had some level of intent or mindfulness in the cultivation of a relationship between your kids and music and. Uh, all three of those, you, them, music, all of those things together. Where do you think, like, h- how did you arrive at that? Um, In turn, I mean, like, you, you're, you're. I know you're a good dad. Um, I know that you can, you know, keep a house and make a meal and pay a bill and be, you know, a good uh, coach, whether you're actually the coach or you're just, throwing the ball in the yard or whatever the case is but it seems like you know intentionally or otherwise that became part of the blueprint to how you were going to parent yeah I mean the way that I look at um, music with my kids um, I'm not trying to steer them in any particular direction you know I'm not telling them hey you need to like this music um, I will occasionally tell them that um, I strongly suggest that you not like this music. Um, Such as? 
we talked about it yesterday. Kids Bop um, right. is, is an abomination. Um, just listen to the original stuff. Uh, but outside of that, um, yeah, I mean, they're kids. Um, kids sometimes listen to weird, crappy kid stuff. I don't care. Um, what I do want to be for my kids is uh, like the the from the standpoint of music where I never had the big brother to like, you know, hey, don't waste your time with that. Check this out. Um, I love being the one to say, check this out. Way to bring it full circle. Yeah. I told you that Jackson started to get into like Motown, you know, got really into Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye. And so then I'm like, have you heard, you know, Sam and Dave? Have you heard Sam Cooke? Have you heard Otis Redding? You know, uh, Martha and the Vandellas and stuff like that. And, you know, and now it's getting to the point where he's like finding stuff, you know, and like playing stuff for me that I haven't heard. Wow. You know, or like Good we'll, job, Dad. we'll discover together. I mean, like I didn't. I knew that Smokey Robinson had written whatever, like all the great songs, okay? But I didn't realize until recently um, there was a documentary uh, about Motown, Barry Gordy. Um, God, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but you realize there that Smokey Robinson, like he wrote everything. Um, I mean, he is one of the most prolific and brilliant songwriters of all time. Lyric, and, lyrically. Yeah. And okay. I was... And Quincy um, Jones produced everything? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a joke, but... Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, but, um, yeah, and I, and I love, like, the stuff that I get um, from my daughter. She's a little bit younger, and um, she's in that phase of wanting to repeat everything a thousand times. Um, when she hears a song she likes, but, uh, all I care about is that they, you know, are listening to good music and that they're appreciating it, appreciating it for the right reasons, you know, and, uh, I love that it's something that we get to do together. Um, I mean, this, you know, there's plenty of stuff in my life that I, experience separate from my kids sure you know rated r movies and you know and and there's plenty of shows like i i go to shows all the time and jackson asks if he can go and i'll say no because it's at a bar you know it's like you're not allowed to go to this place um until you're 21 years old well that's stupid i'm like "Eh, i agree okay but that's just how it is um but the things that i can share with my kids if there's shows that i can go to with them um, or things that we can do together, listen to together, learn about together. Um, it's really, really fun for me, and uh, and I, I treasure it. It's That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Uh, you know, there's you take a kid to a fish or kids to a fish show, and you're inevitably going to get at minimum one person that's like raising them right, bro. Like, ah. Oh. But out of the handful of those that you get, you know, there's one or two in there that are like, you know, there's there's some something genuine about it. Like they're probably parents um, or what? what, I don't know. Um, And that's cool. But like, um, you know, I 
have have kind of for years been like, okay, well, we'll just when the next tour gets announced, we'll have a look, and you know, maybe maybe I'll catch a show, maybe I won't, and that becomes, you know, maybe I catch a show with this current partner or my wife or whatever, and then eventually kids are part of the mix. Um, but it's I'm never like you know shifting into I've never shifted into fifth gear um, with that mindset. It's kind of like you know, if the stars align, um, if there's money, if there's time, if there's whatever, um, and you've gone, um, you've just, it's, I'm, I'm very impressed. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that one day, like they're gonna, I know they appreciate it already, but eventually they're going to be young adults and they're going to be dating and meeting people and whatever. And they're going to meet people who are probably just beginning their Mm -hmm. musical journeys. And you're going to be like, Dude, I was calling my dad the biggest dork for like 17 years. I was so freaking wrong. Um, but you, you've, you've, it's not just a whim. There's, there's some intention behind it. And I mean, you're in town. We saw Casey Musgraves with all of our kids last night. You and Jackson have seen, seen Dead and Company. I'm sure there are other examples, but it's just pretty freaking righteous, man. Um, and I just wanted to give you a hat tip for that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, we should wrap up because it's now officially past the Fisher children's bedtime in Kansas city. 1230. Um, but I wanted to ask you if you have any idea where I was when I first heard the word podcast that I can remember. Um, where I was, where where I was, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, Uh, did, did, did I talk to you about (laughs) podcasts? You did. Okay. Um, I think we were in Breckenridge, Colorado. Okay. Um, party. Mm-hmm. And I think that you were heavily pitching the idea of launching a bloach podcast, <laughs> which stayed, you know, that was, that was Vegas for the way that it stayed out there in that condo. But yeah. uh, you later wrote for, uh, a, a blog called house of George's where I think. I think the subject got revisited or reborn or something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's really funny, man. Like I was like, the fuck's a podcast? What are you talking about? And that would have been, I mean, what, uh, 15, 15 years ago. Yes. And here we are sitting down. Uh, yeah. You know, better late than never. Right. Um, yeah. Back then I was reading, uh, a lot of, Bill Simmons. Uh-huh. When he was still with ESPN. Page two. Uh yep. Okay. And um he I mean, f- for all the negative things you can say about Bill Simmons, and I could fill um many books with negative things to say about Bill Simmons. Of your own? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh you know, I mean he's a douchebag. Go Patriots. But uh to his credit. He was on the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff. For real. Um, he probably set himself up all right, too, I mean, financially. I, I would imagine so. Okay. Um, and uh, and I, he saw the value. I mean, Bill Simmons was a, was a child of sports radio. Like, he grew up in Boston, and he was constantly listening to, to uh, WEI, um, which is like the just acidic, um, super homer, Boston sports radio um, station and 
he saw um, the the passion that was into that, but he also saw the possibility through digital media to go global um, and and have these connections. Like he's specifically looking at like the call in shows and like you know after a big game, particularly a big loss by the home team. Um, I used to do this with Broncos games. It's like after you go to a game and I'm driving home and I'm listening to KOA and everybody calling in and yeah, Mike Shanahan, you know. and can't and, believe they aren't starting Cutler, man. Right. Um, and so. Spoiled SOPs. Uh, Bill Simmons saw the, uh, the possibility of going to digital media, not being tied to terrestrial radio, and you could go off in any direction that you wanted to. And this stuff is, like, addictive, you know. I mean, it's um, when I started reading Page Two, when I started reading Kissing Susie Colbert or Deadspin or, you know, any of the things, like, the, the hobbies or habits that I had for whatever length of time, um, you know, it was all always in written form. And then, you know, and I, and I liked sports radio, but it was annoying, and the commercials were God. annoying, and right the callers. Okay, yeah, drive you off a cliff. Well, the stupid callers. Yeah, uh, you know, most the, of them. The good callers, the funny callers. I mean, you know, it's like, and this is like we went through this with Jim Rome, right? Where it's like he could cultivate um, the good callers, you know, and then he could like make fun of the bad mm-hmm. callers. Global, woman. and you can and you can create entertainment out of that, yeah. um, you know, and it's just like. All I want, especially if I'm driving or, you know, whatever, um, I'm working and I can just play something that is of interest to me. You're talking about a topic that I like. You're doing it in a funny or interesting way. Um, and it can be either a little bit in the background or I can be super active with it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that was something that I thought about a long time ago. I mean, how many people I know that like the next best thing has always got like a pretty significant probably singular whatever driving force behind it and then the thing explodes and then you have the people that are trying to do the same thing i mean how many people were like oh my god like i gotta do what bill simmons is doing but do my own version of it and like just it never stuck I mean, some did, I suppose, but... Well, the thing that, uh, that I always seized on was the, uh, the chemistry and connection that you and me and Alex Neff had. Um, going back to the days of the newsroom at the Independent at Fort Lewis College. What do you think Claire's doing right now? It's uh, a good question. <laughs> we should probably check in. Um, and, you know, and a lot of that was just bullshit sessions, right? Um, Friday on in the background, whatever. Uh, but then the fact that we did that, like in blog form, it fit because we're all writers. And so then we're kind of like doing this round table, bouncing ideas off of each other, um, that are typed up, you know, and posted on the internet. Right. And it was fun and cool and interesting um, but it's not the same, you know, as just like sitting around before or after, 
a football game or going to the bar, you know, and just like that Shanahan Cutler, you know, right. Um, doing the sports radio thing, uh, hearing Alex talk about, you know, the draft picks and, um, right. What would he say? Do you, I feel a draft. He'd always like, burr. <laughs> okay. Uncle Cecil. It's perfect. So yeah. Um, all right. Now you're podcasting. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, we'll see, uh, what it looks like to get through the editing piece of this. And obviously, sorry about the video. Mm. Um, but there's always gotta be a learning curve, I guess. Um, I feel, uh, like there's probably, um, sometime down the road, uh, reason for us to do this again. Sure. Um, so I don't know that I'll ever attempt to travel with any of this. So maybe if you guys make it out for, you know, something else, we can try to carve out another two hours and 20 minutes, um, or whatever. Maybe, maybe it's only 45 cause we ran out of stuff to say cause yeah. of this one. Uh, yeah, we generally do. But, um, you know, um, you want to plug your Instagram or your Twitter or armadillo storage or, uh, your son's traveling baseball team um yes definitely come out and see the durango dragons 13u um select team uh they will be um traveling around the western united states all spring and summer um jackson's gonna be playing some center field pitching hitting from the left side and who's the name i gotta remember justin alder Jude Alderton. Jude Alderton. Yeah, future uh, D1 All-American. Okay. It's some sport. You heard it here first. Uh, I'm looking at the camera like there's still video rolling. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Fisher, thank you. This is fun, brother. Thanks.